Society, held at the Booth Memorial Park on July 24, 
When one has outlived his generation and discusses those who have been called to their fathers and thus can't talk back, a situation arises. I will try to be guided by two ancient Roman proverbs. De mortis nil nisi bonum, concerning the dead say nothing unless good, and the other one translated, any live jackass can kick a dead lion. <laughs> My reason may be insidiously selfish, hoping that in the future, perhaps, I might get equally kind treatment. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. <laughs> As you all know, during the first 200 years of Stafford's history, the care of the schools was under the management of the churches. There were 10 districts, with some of them in what is now Bridgeport, and that is prior to 1873. In 1886, after 15 years wrangling, the present center school was built at a cost of $20,000 for the land and eight rooms. The argument against the building was that Stafford never could fill an eight-room school. <laughs> my father was on the board when the school was built. The center school became my alma mater in 1891. The three R's were taught, also history, physiology, and music. I remember the school teachers as all my teachers, kindly, helpful, considerate, conscientious. The three R's were really taught and hammered into us, especially arithmetic. Arithmetic is a woefully lacking is woefully lacking today so that much so that it is difficult for the high school students to handle a court job physiology was handled as a great mystery one can learn more of the subject uh, of physiology especially feminine anatomy on one hour of a summer's day than we learn in the three grades what this subject is taught there were no thrills and speaking of thrills my beloved daughter, in her first year at high school, had trouble. However, she finished gloriously. Her parents were constantly after her. Study, study, study. <laughs> One evening, she greeted me in all smiles. I had a good mark today, Father. I got A in floating island pudding. <laughs> I remember one weird center school mystery. One morning, there were muddy footprints on the ceiling of the schoolroom. Examination showed that they were made by a right shoe, apparently nailed to a pole and dipped in a pail of mud. As Sherlock Holmes would have said, elementary, Dr. Watson, elementary. <laughs> the miracle of that period is that anyone lived to grow up. Diphtheria, scarlet fever, typhoid, tuberculosis were endemic. Horses, barns, and cowsheds were everywhere. Flies there were by the billions and mosquitoes from the undrained meadows by the trillions. A New York visitor, after staying awake all one night and nourishing these mosquitoes, wrote, they are the size of wild geese and as ferocious as wildcats. <laughs> now, this when I tell this next story, I know you all know it. I cannot vouch for the authenticity of this story. The cathedral put on a yearly clam bank at Stratford Point. Two men were sent down ahead of time to dig the clam. They took a huge iron kettle with them. On this occasion, there was a strong breeze and no mosquitoes. However, the wind died down and the mosquitoes arrived in battalions. Finally, in desperation, the men pulled the kettle over them. The story goes that they could hear the mosquitoes drilling through the kettle. As the bills came through, they lit matches and clinched the bills on the inside. Finally, they attacked so many mosquitoes that they flew away with the kettle. <laughs> The unbelievable part of my early center school experience is that for 200-odd pupils, the only water supply was from a hand-operated pump connected to a driven well in the basement. There was one drinking cup. 
made of cast iron and chained to the pump. The result was constant waves of every disease. That such a condition could have existed even 60 years ago seems impossible today. I do not doubt but what that cast iron cup chained to that pump had more victims than the gallows at Weathersfield's prison. <laughs> there was no plumbing of any kind. In 1910, for $4, the entire school's plumbing system was replaced. This consisted of a galvanized trough in the boys, shall I say, laboratory. <laughs> In 1899, I entered high school in Stratford. Our English teacher was a Miss Mary McCall of Scotch descent, small, freckled, beautiful. No lovelier person ever lived. Every boy in her class loved her and prayed for a chance to save her life. Amen. <laughs> Somebody knew this McCall? <laughs> chance to save her life. I remember one occasion when exasperated by a stupid answer of our 170-pound halfback, she attempted to shake him. She was 70 pounds lighter and couldn't even rock him. He gently took her hands off his shoulders and said, may I help you? And shook himself like a dog. Whereupon she went. She taught us to love good literature. Twenty years ago, we met just by chance outside of a theater in New York City. I had two minutes to tell her how much she had meant to all the boys in her class. I've always been glad of this chance <coughs> up meeting. She has since passed on. The principal at that time was a good soul. He played ball with us at recess, but he was an alcoholic. <laughs> Every so often he disappeared for a week. <laughs> the teacher's good souls did all they could to hush it up, and did his work, and carried on. He talked Latin. And on our first lesson, started us off on Julius Caesar's Jolly R.S. <laughs> without a single moment's study of Amo Amas <laughs> I cannot remember any juvenile delinquents in the full meaning of that word as they use it today. Speaking of juvenile delinquents, uh, I will tell you a story. About a month ago, one of the, an officer of the State Board of Education asked a half a dozen of us to meet here in Stratford, laymen, and talked to him on problems of juvenile delinquency. And he told us this story. There was a juvenile delinquent in this family, and it was rather hopeless. The parents could do nothing with him. They sent him to the priest. The priest could do nothing with him. They sent him to the school principal and the teachers, and they could do nothing with him. So he ended up with a psychiatrist. Well, the psychiatrist asked to examine him, wanted to get him off his neck. So he asked the parents, doesn't he have any relatives away from here, out of town, where I can get in a different environment? Yes, he's got a grandfather and a grandmother on a little farm in a small town of Vermont. Send him up there for a couple of months. Up he went. He came home in about two months, and uh, at dinner, the parents asked him all about the trip. How'd you get along with grandma and grandpa? Wonderful, wonderful. Grandma was wonderful. She could cook anything. Oh, we had such wonderful meals. Grandma was wonderful, and Grandpa taught me how to swim. Grandpa taught you how to swim. Tell us about it. Well, he said, Grandpa woke me up one morning, just daylight. We went down to the boat, and he rode out in the middle of the lake, and he picked me up, and he threw me as far out in the lake as he could. And then he rode ashore, and I had to swim ashore alone. And uh, he said, well, uh, did you get ashore all right? Could you swim all right? Said I could swim all right, but I had a terrible time getting out of that burlap bag. <laughs> 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 
My earliest recollections of the working of town government was about 1900. In an age without radio, movies, and television, and very, very few telephones, when the event of the day was a 7.20 p.m. mail, town meetings were always attended. The officials were elected by the people's vote, even to the dog warden. But then, as tomorrow and forever, a few men made up the slate. Strange things happened, as examples. One board of education members could write his name only. And several years later, and for several years after that, I looked up telephone numbers for a high official who had trouble with his alphabet. <laughs> the annual town meetings were preceded by a get-together of the powers in the old soap club next to the then town hall. At this get-together, the names of the candidate, candidates were selected and the tax rate laid. These were submitted to the voters a half an hour later in the town hall. It worked. The tax rate was kept down as the powers were the largest taxpayers. It was in the power of any voter with little effort to call a special town meeting. This was often taken advantage of, and these special meetings were indeed a piece of soul and a flow of reason. Bitter invective and fistfights were not unheard of. I remember a torrid argument between one William Brown, a Civil War veteran, and one Captain Nearing, also a veteran and a captain of the sailing vessel. Brown suffered terribly from arthritis and was as, as wrinkled as a dried prune. Captain Nearing was equally wrinkled from sailing before the mast. Brown was five feet two and Nearing was six feet six. Nearing shook his fist down at Brown's face and shouted, you dried up wrinkled so-and-so. Whereupon Brown rose to his five feet two, shook his fist up at Nearing, pointed to the wrinkles on his face and cried out, mine, sir, are the lines of thought, yours are the lines of dissipation. <laughs> no harm was done. <laughs> Mr. Det Booth lived in the King in King Street, on King Street, just north of the high school. He attended every town meeting for fifty years. He carried a lighted lantern and always sat at the end of a certain seat. Out of courtesy, before the meeting started, it was checked to see if Miss Booth had safely arrived. <laughs> years later, when on the Board of Education, a group of high school boys came to me complaining that Miss Booth, then very old, sat in her backyard waiting for a ball to come over the fence. Whereupon she picked up the ball, went into the house, and locked the door. <laughs> I called on her, pleaded for an hour, and came away with a half a bushel of baseball. <laughs> I believe it is safe to repeat the following story as all of the principals have passed on to their rewards. Now, there are two kinds of rewards, good and bad. <laughs> the center of the argument was a person with a large following who was up for renomination for an important town office. He was known as Judge. Is Howard Wilcoxon here? Right, yeah, he's out there looking inside. <laughs> <laughs> he made too many of these. He was known as Judge. For personal reasons, and to get a friend a job, the head town fathers were out to nominate another and beat the judge. The assault was terrible. Everything bad, personal, and private was hurled at the judge. In defense, he took the stage and hysterically and with tears streaming told how he had known them all their lives did everything, done everything for their, themselves and their families, and ended up with arms extended, crying out, I love you all, I love you all. <laughs> Whereupon, the complete sound following was broken by a huge bass voice in the rear crying out, Kiss me, Judge. <laughs> that was the climax. The room exploded. That was the climax. The room exploded with shouts of laughter, and the judge lost. <laughs>
My knowledge of our fire department started about 1895. The equipment consisted of a hand-drawn hook and ladder with several very heavy ladders, very heavy ladders, a hand pump that required four pumpers, buckets, helmets, and a trumpet. The only kind of trumpet was used was when it was carried, filled with flowers, by the chief in a parade. <laughs> as a as a instrument, the trumpet was a joke. As by the time this Goliath of a machine had been dragged to a fire, there wasn't wind enough in the surviving fireman to blow a whistle. <laughs> the truck was kept in the basement of a brick building known as the conference building in the rear of the congregational church. It was manned by volunteers called day or night by the mad ringing of the church bells. The time element always has spelled victory to fate with, as regards fire since Rome's Jack Benny won Mr. Nero Fiddles. <laughs> Consider the time element in 1895. A fire occurred. Let us not exaggerate and say it is a mile away from the engine. It could be three miles away. There are no phones. <clears throat> and so by foot or horse, the church bell must be reached. Eventually the bell is wildly rung. The ponderous hook and ladder is dragged out and headed for the fire, which is now illuminating the sky. Time marches on. Victories were very rare. If a pair of horses were available, they were, they were used. But one horse couldn't pull the heavy, the heavy truck. In that case, it was manpower. It was a thankless job after defeat, dragging the apparatus back with a small boy chanting, they saved the wells, they saved the cellar. Our best citizens belonged, regardless of ages and health. And many a life must have been shortened for men who should have known better. When there was snow on the ground, or the spring thaws made the roads impassable, fires were not supposed to occur. <laughs> About the year 1898, there was a beautiful old home located on the Brody, Brody Drug property at Maine and Stratford Avenue. On a mild afternoon of a warm winter's day, this house, ran as a boarding house by one Benham, caught fire in the attic near a chimney. The alarm came in, and practically all Stafford Center responded. The trolley cars had arrived. The hook and ladder was hauled up to the rear of a dinky side-sitting single-truck trolley, and the mob piled in, holding the tow rope. The, motor, the motorman, suffering from phobia that's a new word, phobia <laughs> opened the motor up wide without allowing the fire apparatus to gain momentum. All the men in the car holding the rope were yanked out into space. <laughs> The hook and ladder hadn't budged. <laughs> the, Benham, the Benham fire made a record. Starting in the attic, it was five hours burning down. <laughs> At the fire, I saw, I actually saw myself, wash bowls, pitchers, and mirrors thrown out of the second story window and mattresses carried down the stairs. <laughs> All the public went in. When there was a fire like that, everybody was a fireman. No, how to be marble and trying to get the stuff out. The fire gained some headway when the fireman carried out a huge cook stove, fire and all, to the back lawn. To the back lawn, and there found a great roast of beef in the oven. Perhaps this was the first coffeeless coffee break in Stratford history. The Benham house burned down. I think it's my Christian duty here to tell you this is half over. <laughs> About 1910, the town acquired a locomobile chassis and made it into a chemical engine with one tank for the chemicals. 
It also carried 500 feet of hose. A water system with some hydrants had arrived. From this state, with a telephone, fires had some competition. In the daytime, this machine was manned by men working in Stratford Center. At night, it was manned by five men who lived within a thousand feet of the engine, had an alarm bell beside their bed, a one-piece waterproof suit and boots ready, and a bicycle in front of the house aimed at the firehouse. <laughs> Chief Judson took the alarm. He lived in the reed block next to the old town hall, pressed the button, and we had two minutes to make the fire, to make the firehouse. It was rough, dangerous work with no salary. We fought fires at all hours and all weather, in mansions and in manure piles. We treated the job as a lark, and years after, and years after, at a get-together, we agreed that it was a high spot in our lives. We saw glorious comedy, dark tragedy, and sudden death. At 2 a.m., the Wickley Warehouse, where Bedell Shipyard now stands, was a three-story structure crammed with building material, caught fire. When we arrived, it was a furnace. While we made the hydrant connection, two of our men were trying to get a drunken man out of a third-story window. As they started down the ladder, the ladder broke, and one fireman landed on the victim. The fireman's leg was broken. <coughs> the unconscious man was propped up against the fence, and I was holding his swollen tongue out with a pair of pliers so that he would not suffocate. Along came Dr. Howland, and with a, they need you with the fire, he pulled out a large needle, and with a piece of strong linen thread, crushed the needle through the unconscious man's tongue and tied the thread to a button on his vest. I <laughs> uh, that night. The warehouse burned down. Again, a 2 a.m. fire. This involved a very valuable new resident. My job was to make the hydrant connection. The chief slowed down at the hydrant. Spending, if I should lose these, I'd be wrong with it. <laughs> the, chief, the chief slowed down at the hydrant. Connection. Oh, yeah, wait a minute. The chief slowed down at the hydrant. I wound the hose around the hydrant, and the chief shot to the fire. You could lay 500 feet in this way and nothing flat. When they were ready for water, they sounded the siren, and I turned the water on. Not so this night. Someone had sawed off the rod that protects from the top of the hydrant over which the wrench fits to turn the water on. Someone wanted that house to burn down, and it did. Of the five nights, of the five-man night schools, with many replacements, only Chief Jepson and I survived. Court cases of that period were confined to riding a bicycle on a sidewalk, about 80% of them of that, tramps, drunks, non-support, and minor malfeasances. The temptation to ride on the sidewalk was caused by the conditions of the road, which were all loose gravel. The sidewalks were hired. There was a foot of, there wasn't a foot of our present-day fine roads in town. The fine was five dollars, or whatever the victim had in his person is less than five dollars. The insistent rumor was that the town received a third, the arresting constable one third, and the justice of the peace a third. The arresting constables were elected by popular vote, and by some strange coincidence, no Stratford voter was ever arrested for riding on a sidewalk. <laughs> the, <laughs> the jail known as the lockup was in the rear of the old town hall. It contained two iron cells about eight feet by four feet with a heating stove outside of the cells. There was no plumbing and no water. It was built of brick with one tiny window and a flat roof. <clears throat> about 1910, a Mr. Blank of Huntington Road was arrested for drunkenness and beating his wife. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was winter. It was snow on the ground, and he was not locked up. He was not locked up in the cell so that he could keep the fire going and keep warm. Mr. S. had suffered the loss of both legs at the knees and walked on the stump, making a round track like that of a baby elephant without toes. Under full steam ahead, his top speed was one mile an hour. When morning dawned, the day was empty of mystery. He was a strong man and had climbed to the top of the cells and with his powerful back had raised one corner of the roof, working the bricks loose and propping up the roof as he worked the bricks loose. When the roof was raised enough, he dropped out in the snow and walked home. There was no mistaking his tracks. He was brought back and fined $10. <laughs> he came in my store and I asked him how he lost his leg. He said I was a railroad brakeman when the freight cars were, were braked from the end of the roof and they walked from one end of the train to the other on the roof of the car. Knotted ropes hung down from a cable string, from a cable strung across the track. These ropes hit the brakeman and he knew that it meant lie down as they were approaching an overhead bridge. He said, I came up between the ropes and the bridge and hit the bridge. Forty-four cars ran over me. I lost both legs at the knees, had five broken ribs, a broken arm and a fractured skull, and outside of that, I was in perfect health. <laughs> I will always remember him as an optimist. I had... Uh, <laughs> I've been requested to tell this story. Yes, that's right. I had quite a personal experience in the same jail. <laughs> you got me wrong. <laughs> a Detroit prostitute had operated with the Detroit police and involved some very powerful Detroit gangsters. These gangsters, all Italians, brought the woman to Bridgeport and were to take her to New Haven. They hired a locomobile and driver in Bridgeport and at night started for New Haven. They would not tell the driver where to go, as one claimed he knew the way. All had been drinking. When at Stratford Center, instead of taking East Broadway, they kept on Main Street and ended up in Putney, and they were lost. Near the Putney Cemetery, they told the driver to let them out, come back in 10 minutes and pick them up. The driver was suspicious, and after 100 yards, turned his car around and headed back. His life showed one man shooting and killing the woman. He rushed the car by them toward the Stafford Center and the search was on. An hour later, the murderer was caught with a pistol and empty shells and brought to the lockup. It was then discovered that the heavy air locks on the cell doors were sprung. And no one had the keys and the cells could not be locked. The sheriff was anxious to get back to Putney and get the other two men. He handed me a loaded pistol and I sat in the cell opposite the murderer with the door unlocked and 125-watt lamp brightly lighting up the cell. Away went the sheriff and the searchers, and there I sat with the murderer, four feet away, glaring at me. Then, the light burned out. <laughs> and the darkness was stygian. I cocked the pistol, and the noise of that act was like an explosion. And there we sat, one minute, five minutes, twenty minutes, and then help arrived, and the bulb was replaced. I gave the pistol back to the sheriff. It was so warm that he, that he thought I must have shot it off. <laughs> when I finally did get home, I dreaded to look in the mirror as I was sure my hair must be white. My comrade of the evening was hanged at Weatherfield. I remember one case of the power of ridicule. A Mrs. W. was perhaps 
the first woman to be on the Stafford Board of Education. Her 140-pound husband was a newspaper reporter, and when sober, he was a good one. She had him arrested for drunkenness, and he appeared in court with a 24-inch Stilton wrench, which he said he kept under his bed for his protection. <laughs> the affair, including Mr. W., was crude. Election time was approaching, and it seemed for the best interest of the good name of the town that she be defeated. Mrs. W. was a monstrous woman at least 300 pounds. One night, there was stolen from her clothesline an unmentionable, intimate, feminine garment of that period, of gigantic proportions, white, and with a single button on each side. When daylight dawned, the said garment was blowing in the breeze from the top of the Republican flagpole of Stafford The hazards had been cut, and it was a steeplechase, a steeplejack's job to get the garment down. For two days, it graced the view of all. The uncouth members of the town people were convulsed with laughter, and Mrs. W. was not re-elected. In 1909, I was nominated by the Republicans for the office of town clerk. The only reason for this nomination was because of a personal feud between factions of the party who wanted to defeat an uncooperative candidate. I knew nothing of the job, was working for a bank in Bridgeport, and just as sensibly should have been elected to show up Persia. The town clerk's job then as today, however, is a position of great responsibility. An unlimited work. It requires absolute accuracy. The town clerk was the recording clerk of all town government boards, selectmen, finance board, and so forth. Had charge of all elections, issued all licenses, dogs, marriage, fishing, hunting, and so forth, and kept all the records. Land, birth, marriage, and death. I didn't forget them. It was a grind, but interesting, and took every evening in the week. And let me say here that if anybody ever goes out to change this form of government, to get rid of Howard Wilcox and don't let him do it. <laughs> We've never had a town clerk like him in our life. I remember a young colored couple applying for a marriage license and paying the fee in small change. I asked the lady where they were going on their honeymoon. She said, Fairfield Beach. At, the, at that period, with a nickel and a transfer, you would get to Fairfield Beach. Our present-day youth could profit by such laudable threats. <laughs> On another occasion, a husky Italian with a tiny Italian woman applied for a license. He dominated the scene, was sour and very somber. Fairfield Beach. At, the, <laughs> at that period, with a nickel and a transfer, you would get to Fairfield Beach. Our present-day youth could profit by such laudable threats. <laughs> On another occasion, a husky Italian with a tiny Italian woman applied for a license. He dominated the scene, was sour and very somber. She wept silently. He asked to be directed to the nearest minister, and I sent him to the Methodist Church. An hour later, the bride burst into the office almost incoherently excited. I didn't want to marry him. He made me. Didn't you see his hands in his coat pocket? He had a pistol. If I said a word, he would shoot me. I finally quieted her down, told her to sit still, and I would send her then only in first police on one Mr. Barnum and bring her new husband in. Mr. Barnum was a house painter, and I had trouble to locate him. <laughs> After one half hour, 
the bride became very excited and insisted that she had to go home. Finally, after repeated outbursts, I asked her why she had to go home. She said, I have two little babies. I asked her, who is the father? And she said, he is. <laughs> A shotgun wedding in reverse. <laughs> During the depression, Here's one you'll never believe. <laughs> you know me. During the Depression, I was handed the job of chairman of the Board of Education. That is a killing factor's job. It is unbelievable what the foreign mothers expect and demand. Quotation marks. Did you know that my Willie, H7, didn't pass his arithmetic test? That the teacher is partial, the two boys copied, and when Willie did his duty and told the teacher he got a bloody nose in the playground, and so forth and so forth. During the money stringency of the Depression, we did not know from payroll to payroll whether or not the next payroll would be met. Our teachers, realizing the almost impossible financial situation, voluntarily, and to their everlasting credit, took cuts of 10%, 10%, and 5%. Our schools carried on, and only because of, because of the teacher's loyalty. When money eased, we voted a 10% salary return. One of our town officials, a family man, had become enamored for the young school teacher. It was mutual. The night patrol cop would say, I saw Mr. Mr. So-and-so and Miss So-and-so out uh, driving again last night. After the first salary refund vote, Mr got me aside and said, I approve of the 10% salary return, and I want them all to get it for Miss So-and-so. And when she comes to you and asks why she alone did not get the refund, you are to tell her she ain't been seeing Mr. So-and-so as often as she used to. <laughs> as a youth, I was a rabbit pro-business and never missed a chance to argue it. I believed that with the women having the vote, Prohibition would be 100% enforced, and away would go our jails, poorhouses, courts, police, and so forth. I also remember the high school boy getting in an argument on election day with a bartender trying to make him vote dry. I certainly was an optimist, but I took a terrific physical beating on that day. I now read the two episodes of Prohibition. It's hard to believe, but uh, anyhow, it's not very long. One on, uh, at the height of the Prohibition scandal, on a cold Saturday winter's night with snow on the ground, I was at the Cafe Club in a bridge tournament. A knock at the door admitted a state police officer who asked for me, did I have a large truck? Could I drive it? He then commandeered me to go to work for the state highway, uh, the state police department. A rum-running boat had gone aground and the liquor had been stored in the town lockup and had been condemned. The lockup cells were full of cases of liquor. That night, another rum runner had gone aground and been captured, and they must have the cells emptied to store the newly captured liquor. I backed my truck up to the lockup, and the state police loaded the truck. A Stafford man, a reporter for a Bridgeport paper, looking for a story, asked to ride with me. He was welcome. The police at the jail checked the load, and we drove to Bond's dock, where two state policemen carted the liquor to the spring pieces of the dock smashed it with axes and pushed it in the river. Oh. At about 3.30 in the morning, we piled on a huge load to finish the job and went to the dock. No officers were there. 
the reporter and I dumped a few cases on, on the, in the river and then decided that we would have to report for this and we better not do it. We better not throw any more in. We started back with the load and coming down Broad Street, the reporter said, here's a person that might appreciate a case of whiskey. So a case was left on her front porch. She was president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. <laughs> the case was left on the porch of the Congregational Rectory and one for a justice of the Supreme Court and a few others where they would do the least good. <laughs> it's a strange thing. Uh, we may have left a half a dozen cases because it was a crazy thing to do. But no one, no one ever heard a word of it. We didn't hear it. <laughs> we didn't hear it because the milkman or, or the newspaper man or somebody found those cases on the front porch before the people were up. <laughs> <laughs> the truck ended in my side yard with at least a hundred cases of liquor. The liquor was, and liquor was then selling it from fifty to a hundred dollars a case. And if you, did, if you didn't have the money to buy for it, they stuck a knife in your back and took it. All day Sunday, this loaded truck stood in plain sight in my driveway. As I had to use the truck Monday, in the afternoon, I carted the load and piled it on the barn floor. From the time that the last load was checked at the town jail to this day, I had never had any worries from any source. No one ever tried to pay for the use of the truck. No one asked for any report. When spring came, I took up two very wide floorboards and stored the liquor under the barn floor and didn't nail the board down. That summer I had to have my house painted and I hired a Mr. F to do the job. He was around the docks and got two floaters to do the work. With the house partly painted, it rained, and I told Mr. F to have the two men cart my strings to the barn and paint them. The next morning and the next and the next, the painters didn't show up. I went to the barn and discovered that the floorboards had been taken up and the entire load carted away. Mr. Ash never saw his two floaters again. This, now, this last episode is, is a stupid thing to admit. If I were to name this, I'd name it Tools Work In My Angels Create a Tread. During Prohibition, all business was harassed with drunken labor trouble because of many speakeasies, some of them protected by politicians and police. One speakeasy on Stratford Avenue, Bridgeport, a thousand feet from the Stratford line, caused us constant trouble. On a winter night, with heavy snow on the ground, the Bridgeport Police Department called me as I sat down to dinner, saying that my truck was blocking traffic, and where was the driver? I told them that they would find the driver drunk, and in this speakeasy that they would not close up. The sergeant was mad and said they couldn't get the evidence. If I would go in there, buy a drink and get out with it alive with the evidence as evidence they would close the place up he practically dared me to go and said the two policemen would await me on the street corner like a young fool i told my family i was called out hopped the trolley car and the two policemen met me they took my heavy gloves from me promised that they would be outside and solemnly shook hands with me like old friends meeting at a funeral when i went through the side door a bell rang inside then there was a long corridor and another door and an angle, and that was it. There was my driver at the bar, just able to stand up. I told him he had trouble at home, that I'd buy him a drink, and then we would leave at once. He looked at me blurry-eyed, turned to the bartender and said, He's not here for any good. 
That introduction could have been a death sentence. I insisted on a glass of gin for both of us. The bartender finally went to a wall closet and poured out two small glasses. The glasses were heavy, very small, almost like an eye cup. The bartender then went to the only door that I could get out of, leaned up against the door, and watched me. <laughs> the place was crowded, and the barflies, sensing something unusual, watched us both. I sipped the concoction, talked to the driver, and fervently wished I was home. Then the bell rang, and an argument started on the outside door. The bartender turned, looked down the hall, and in, and in two jumps, I hit him with all I had, and down he went. <laughs> he caught me by one arctic, and I dragged him down the hall, and then fell out into the door into the most welcome arms of those most welcome policemen. In my left hand, I had the gin glass held tightly against my palm, with one half the liquor still in it. The next morning, Chief Nichols came in, he had the papers, and said, so you have accepted an invitation to sudden death. The paper headlines read something that was like lone civilian rates speakeasy and so forth. Two days later, I had to be in the courtroom in the police station in Fairfield Avenue. Chief Nichols told me to wait for him. He wanted to go. He was late, and I went alone. I sat in the courtroom and noticed one door opening and instant people looking in. Then came Chief Nichols, all excited. I've been outside. A gang has studied you up, and you're in for at least a grand beating. He took me to the Bridgeport Chief of Police who heard Nichols' story. Out went two cops who brought in the chief, who brought into the chief's office the door peekers. The chief took their names and addresses and said if, if a hair of my head was harmed, he would give them life. Then he told me to study them up, carry a gun, and shoot anyone on, the, on sight if he even looked at me. <laughs> I carried the gun, and except for a few threatening phone calls, nothing happened. It is hard today to believe that such lawless conditions existed. Congratulations, friends. It is finished. You have showed great patience and endurance to survive this filibuster. Thank you. <laughs> You'll all agree with me, that beats a business meeting any day in the week. <laughs> the thing is, Harold doesn't tell you who put the ox cart on the ridge pole of the Methodist Church on Halloween. <laughs> well, you better tell us. <laughs> you tell us. I don't know. Um, you know? <laughs> Not that word. No. <laughs> One other story that I always thought was a good one. That was on in the town clerk's house. Uh, a lawyer, no less. A lawyer brought in a deed to put on record. It was for a track of property in Putney, and for which he had paid $1,200. He had bought it from a colored woman, a washerwoman who lived on Stafford Avenue. And when he brought the deed in for record, I looked at it, and I recognized the property. And I said to him, I think the that this property was sold. Three was sold months ago. Oh, no, he was a lawyer. I said, did you search the title? Oh, no, he was a lawyer. We looked it up, and it was true. So I sent the, the policeman down, and he brought the colored woman back, and she, she took in washings, and she came in just as she left the wash up. The questions were, uh, you sold, didn't you sell this property three months ago to Mr. So-and-so? Yes, I did. Did he pay her? Yes, he did. And now you sold again to this lawyer here? Yes, I did. Has he paid you? Yes, he has. <laughs> Why did you do it? She said, I just had to have that $1,200. It's <laughs> <laughs> been a very enjoyable evening, and uh, I think we're all indebted to Harold for a very entertaining time, and I'm sure that you could digest any kind of a meal at all 
<laughs> with that kind of a finish. <laughs> this is a very good meal, nevertheless. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll call our meeting adjourned. Thank you all for coming out. The next regular meeting will be in the September 4th, Friday. And we'll see you all then. <laughs> <laughs>